You'll probably be able to tell that I was slightly nervous in this interview, but what an incredible person and fascinating discussion. This is an interview with Stephen Wolfram. He's a computer scientist, mathematician, theoretical physicist, and the founder of Wolfram Research, the company behind Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram Language, and the Wolfram Physics Project. He was so generous with his time and even extended the amount of time he'd set aside for me. But even though this was the longest interview on the channel to date, of course, we'd only just touched on some of his ideas. And so I hope this inspires you to go and delve deeper into his work by reading some of his books. In particular, I can recommend his book on the Wolfram Physics Project and A New Kind of Science, both of which I've linked in the description. The Wolfram Physics Project is also very open source and there's plenty of information on the project's website, which I've also linked. We talked about a lot from his educational experience to cellular automata and complexity to the Wolfram Physics Project and a handful of its striking discoveries and much more. Enjoy. All right, so I want to talk about some of your ideas in a minute, uh, like from Cellular Automata to the Wolfram Physics Project. Uh, but just to start with, because these interviews are um, aimed at a student audience wanting to, uh, I kind of wanted to look at your own student days. So you took a quite unconventional path and were clearly very, very driven from a young age. Uh, tell us yeah. what shaped your decision and uh, Sorry, that was your decisions. Well, okay. Well, I, I grew up in England in the 1960s, and uh, uh, that, which was outrageously long time ago for those around today. But in those days, the big thing was the space program and space and so on. And that was uh, kind of the, the future was all tied up with space. I'm glad I didn't stay in the space business because I would have been waiting for 50 years for something to happen. Yeah, it's uh, certainly taken a while. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's sort of ironic that uh, a lot of the physics I'm studying now has to do with the structure of space, but not in the same sense as the space program, I guess. Very different. Case, I, I, um, so I got interested in, uh, you know, I followed every, you know, in 1968-ish time frame, I sort of followed every spacecraft launch and all those kinds of things, and I got kind of interested in, then I got interested in sort of how would you design spacecraft to do things and how the spacecraft work and so on. And that got me kind of backed into understanding things about physics. And so by the time I was, I guess, maybe 11, 12 years old, I was 11 years old, probably. I was uh, reading lots of physics textbooks and such like and trying to understand physics. And I guess I got, uh, I sort of got interested in more and more foundational kinds of things. And I think one, one important uh, uh, sort of thing for me was there's a, there's a cover of a, a book about statistical physics, which is some kind of college textbook that has this uh, sequence of images that purport to show the second law of thermodynamics in action. And uh, I got age 12 or so, I got really interested in that. And uh, I was disappointed that the book kind of said, uh, explains the sort of second law of thermodynamics and, and gives a totally lame explanation, which it kind of admits doesn't really explain how sort of complexity and randomness and so on actually arise in, in the world. So I got interested in that. Then um, I was, uh, uh, I went to a, a fine little school in Oxford, England, which is, uh, um, was around lots of uh, uh, 
kids of academics as I was, and um, the um, uh, my mother was a philosopher professor in Oxford. Um, and uh, the the main thing I I learned from that, I suppose, is that well, I, at the time I said, if there's one thing I'll never do when I'm grown up, it's philosophy. And uh, if you look at things I've been writing in recent times about things like, you know, why does the universe exist and so on, I guess, you know, 50 years later, turns out I wasn't quite right about that. Um, but uh, it was, um, it's kind of, uh, so, so I, um, I went um, in, the, in the British system, I don't know to what extent you're, you're dealing with a British audience, but um, uh, the, um, uh, I ended up there's the whole sort of scholarship exams thing at age 12-ish or so. And I went off to Eton, which was sort of at the time, I don't know if it's still considered sort of a, a fine top, if not particularly science-oriented uh, school. And um, I think I went there because I had sort of calculated had the largest scholarships, although it didn't really make that much difference. And it, it, uh, But it was, a, it was an interesting group of people anyway. Um, I think the... Um, We've all gone on to do, most, most have gone on to do interesting things. Um, but anyway, so when I was, I went there, got a fine kind of classical education with me mostly objecting that when will I ever use knowledge of Latin and Greek and, and history and all these kinds of things. It turns out almost everything that I learnt in school, I've turned out to use. I have a decent memory. So I remember all these, even these weird Latin irregular verbs, I think. Um, who can test me, but, but um, uh, you know, it, it's ended That's up... That's been for years. <laughs> it's, it's um, uh, you know, the big surprise has been that, that I actually use all that stuff. And it's like, you know, I'm having to name things and I'm having to sort of think, oh, can I come up with a nice Greek-rooted name for that thing? Often ends up not being Greek-rooted in the end, but um, uh, at least one tries that. But anyway, so I, I was... Um, uh, went to sort of a, a, a fine top school, although most of what I was really interested in was stuff that I was doing kind of on the side, uh, working on learning about physics. And um, uh, I got really, at the time, particle physics was sort of a big thing. And uh, I got sort of pulled into that. I, I guess when I was like 12 years old, I, I did this thing which you can find somewhere on the web, which is uh, a little sort of summary of, of physics sort of uh, directory of physics and so on, which is, has a certain uh, depressing resonance with things that I've done in subsequent years because it's kind of collections of, of knowledge and facts about physics and so on. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, that's, that's what the kid who goes on and ends up building Wolf Malfa does when they're 12 years old and so on. And, and when I found that, that document, uh, years later, I kind of... Uh, you know, I was, well, I guess, I guess I found it before we actually had released Wolf Malfa, but when we had Wolf Malfa up and running, I was like, let me type in some numbers from this thing I wrote when I was 12 and see if we can actually compute them now. And, and yeah, we did, we did, we did well on that. But then I, I got, I got interested in, in um, uh, it was a time, mid 1970s was uh, kind of the golden age of particle physics. It was at a time when, you know, most, most fields go through these kind of periods of uh, when, sort of nothing much is happening. And then there's usually some methodological advance. And then suddenly there's lots of low hanging fruit to be picked and lots of exciting discoveries to be made. And that's kind of what happened with particle physics around 1973 or so um, with uh, kind of discoveries around quantum field theory being, uh, being made. But quantum field theory had been invented actually in the late 1920s. And it sort of gradually moved forward things in quantum electrical dynamics done in the 1940s and so on. But it kind of got stuck and people didn't know if quantum field theory was going to be the way forward. 
And then in the very beginning of the 1970s, it's kind of a bunch of things happened that led to what's now the standard model of particle physics and so on. And that really, really got, to, it became clear there was lots of exciting stuff to do. And so I was, um, I guess I uh, ended up producing, I don't know, I, I seem to be fated to do expositional kinds of things. And I produced uh, uh, two kind of, um, you know, you can find them on the web now, typewritten sort of uh, book-like things about particle physics, one about general particle physics, the other about weak interactions. And when I was like 13, 14 years old, actually, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because I, you know, there, there's some history of particle physics stuff, which I covered in, in one of those where I was looking for that recently. And it's like, I searched for it on the web and I end up finding my own stuff from when I was like 13 years old. And it's, it's, um, uh, I think, I think, uh, I was thinking of putting some legend on it saying, look, I was 13 when I wrote this. I don't know if it, you know, I've no, no guarantees that this is the definitive history of particle physics. Sounds but, like uh, quite a surreal experience. Yeah, up. it was a little bit, a little bit amusing. Yeah. Bit amusing. I mean, it's kind of a little bit depressing, actually, because kind of, you know, particle physics had been such an energetic field in the mid-1970s. And then when I sort of went back and looked, so what happened with all this stuff? A lot of burnt out stuff, a lot of stuff where things have been really exciting and happening at that time. And this is very typical of lots of fields of science, that they have periods of, of great sort of advance and then kind of coasting periods that can last, well, as it did for the space program, kind of last a, a, most of a, a career time, so to speak. But I think um, anyway, in, in, in my own sort of trajectory, I, I um, one of the things that was sort of big for me in the, well, two things. Things happened in the in the kind of 1973-1974 time frame. Um, one was a thing called the JPSI particle was discovered in, in particle accelerators, and it was like, what is this? That was an unexpected particle, and uh, everybody had to have a theory about it. And the 14-year-old me was one of those people. My theory, uh, kind of the, I think it's the only time where I've actually had sort of a a theory which, at least at the time, was definitely not right. Um, and I've been, I've sort of prided myself on whenever I've actually stuck my neck out to have an actual theory of what was going on in some situation. It's been, uh, you know, I've either not said anything or it's turned out to be a correct theory, but what that, that theory kind of posited the idea that electrons are not really point particles and, and traditional uh, quantum field theory, traditional particle physics, electrons are just zero sized geometrical points, at least intrinsically so they're kind of uh, you know, they, they, they collect around them a cloud of virtual photons and other such things, but in, in their intrinsic nature, they're thought of as, as zero-sized point particles, and this kind of posited a kind of uh, uh, a situation in which, in which um, uh, electrons would have a size of like 10 to the minus 18 meters. Turns out not to be true. Ironically enough, in our current theory of physics, once again, electrons have non-zero size, although I think a rough estimate, maybe not clear this is right, but a rough estimate of possible size is 10 to the minus 81 meters. So the, uh, the flipped around the digits in the exponent and um, off by 60 orders of magnitude or something. But anyway, that was that was the first um, uh, that that thing caused me to to write my first kind of paper that I sent into a physics journal and got published and so on. Um, I don't think it was a particularly good paper, but um, it's. Uh, you know, it's it's amusing when one's 15 years old to have all these little, in, the, in those days, people used to request physical preprints of, of papers and I would get all these cards, you know, I was at boarding school then and all these cards would arrive at desk to, you know, Dr. S. Wolfram and it was very amusing for, for my um, uh, uh, co-student, so to speak.
I'm um, sure. Yeah. But I think, I mean, that then the other big thing that happened at that time was that I started using computers. And um, in, uh, uh, I think the, um, uh, the school that I was at had a, um, had a computer, which wasn't very common at the time. Uh, it had come through a rather, rather circuitous route, actually, that had come from a, a teacher who was there, who I knew quite well, who was a, had been a friend of Alan Turing's and had worked at the National Physical Laboratory. And somehow that had wound up with, uh, with the school getting a thing called an Elliott 903 computer, which was uh, the size of a large desk and programmed with paper tape and uh, uh, was kind of a, a, a it had um, uh, 8,000 18 bit words of memory, kind of, kind of small by today's standards. But, um, uh, uh, but so anyway, I, I, I started programming that. And one of my goals was to reproduce the, the sort of second law of thermodynamics phenomenon that was shown on the cover of the, the book about statistical physics that I've been interested in. And uh, uh, I, I, I ended up writing these programs to do that. And it wasn't particularly easy to write simulate, physics simulation programs on a computer that's that primitive. And I ended up sort of simplifying the programs to the point where actually I ended up having a cellular automaton, a very simple program that I ended up studying years later. And through a somewhat technical detail, the program that I made at that time did nothing interesting. So I didn't manage to reproduce the second order thermodynamics behavior, and I kind of put it aside. And um, But I did learn to program computers, and I, I wrote um, a bunch of kind of systems level uh, code and things the computer of paper tape loaders and other such uh, exciting, not very modern kinds of uh, kinds of things. But then I then um, uh, I kind of gotten well. Let's see. I I I did what you know in, in England it always used to be a, a a badge of honor to say you know I left school at sixteen so to speak and and I did um, because uh, uh, and I mostly was was um, doing um, uh, you know I mostly was sort of. Uh, doing things on my own, doing doing physics and so on. I used to go and you know take the train and go go to the physics seminars in Oxford and so on. Um, I, I think that's a that's a multiply edged sword because because I was a, a brash young fellow, and so I would show up at age you know fifteen, sixteen, or something at these physics seminars, and I would ask questions, and sometimes I would ask rather probing questions, and so I think that. Um, I kind of got, uh, and you know, the physics community is a pretty international community. And so people would come through and visit and so on. And, and they'd run into this brash teenager and such like. And, and so I think I got this reputation as a brash teenager. And because it's an international field that doesn't have much turnover, I, I think still, you know, 45 years later or something, I, I think in some ways I, I still live down the, uh, the, the sort of uh, image of the, of the brash you know, 15-year-old me asking uh, awkward questions of people talking about random physics topics and so on. So it's, a, it's, a, it's amusing to be uh, kind of um, early in those things, but it has some, it has some strange, um, strange features. But, but anyway, that, then I, I went, um, uh, let's see, I guess the, the way the British system worked at that time, if you got, you know, a quote scholarship, which was largely honorific because the government paid for everything anyway, um, to Oxford or Cambridge, you could skip doing, you know, the standardized exam, A-level and things. And, and so I, that's, so that's what I did when I was 16. And I ended up going to work at this place called the Rutherford Lab, which is a, um, a physics research uh, outfit in England. 
and doing theoretical particle physics. And I, I wrote a number of papers that got progressively better, I would say, at the time. And uh, I also, there they had a, a fine mainframe computer that was connected to this thing called the ARPANET that, was, uh, that subsequently became the internet, so to speak. And so I started being able to make use of, well, at that time I started using computers to do algebraic calculations, which was something that pretty much other than the people who'd written systems to do that, nobody had the idea, it seems, that you could, because in, in doing physics, particularly particle physics, it ends up that there are these, you know, really messy, complicated algebraic calculations to do. It's kind of remarkable that when you do them all, you seem to get the right answer, but it's difficult to actually do them. And uh, people would be uh, pride themselves on being able to be the finest, you know, doer of integrals in, in the land, so to speak. And it turned out, uh, sort of, I I wasn't that keen on those things as a as a as a hand doer of integrals and such like. And I kind of learnt that one could use computers to do those things, and so started doing that. So that was uh, then. Well, I went to after the Rutherford Lab. I went to Oxford as an undergraduate. I didn't really. It was. I don't know what the system is these days, but in those days you could kind of, you didn't have to show up to you know lectures and things like that. You could just do what you wanted. And so long as you did the exams at the end of the first year or something, you, you could sort of uh, do whatever. And um, I, the only thing that I did that was part of the sort of standard sequence, I think was uh, uh, the experiments, which I kind of found interesting. And it's sort of an opportunity to, uh, you know, play with actually actually get one's hands on various physics kinds of things and sort of useful intuitionally to do that. But mostly, I I ended up um, well get, getting uh, using the computers of an experimental particle physics group that I actually I guess helped with some data analysis for in return for using their computers and their connection to the ARPANET and so on. And I was off writing physics papers. And I I got at that time I got interested in the connection between cosmology and particle physics, which was then not a thing people talked about. And one of the big things I'd been interested in is how come there's more matter in the universe or at least around us in the universe than antimatter. And uh, that, was, that was kind of one of the things. And, and how come the universe can go from this, and again, it's kind of a, a thermodynamics type story. How can the universe go from this kind of initial condition of the Big Bang where it's this big hot gas of expanding stuff to something where there's all the structure and galaxies and things formed by gravity and so on in the universe, and I was very interested in that and interested in whether the second law of thermodynamics applied to gravity and things like this. Um, and uh, uh, that was, but, but what I what I said, did for, wasn't quite my day job yet, but um, what I ended up doing, you know, I wrote papers about, well, particle physics and QCD and things, and then uh, some papers about uh, the relationship between things that, that happened in the early universe and particle physics. Um, and uh, it's, you know, one of the features of being in a field when it's in sort of its rapid expansion kind of, um, uh, you know, low-hanging fruit phase is that, you know, you can, you can be a kid and you can write papers and people still read those things, you know, decades later because it was, you, you ended up being the first person to pick that particular piece of low-hanging fruit. Probably somebody else would have come along, you know, within a few years and done it, but because you were sort of first in the area, so to speak. Um, and you, you get to, to see yourself coming up on Google several years later. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's it's um, the but but anyway. So I mean, to to finish the you asked about so the education trajectory. I suppose I finished. I I left Oxford after maybe a year and a half, and uh, uh, I had 
spent some time in the US at the national lab in the US over the summer and ended up going to graduate school in the US at Caltech. And um, uh, if I had put any more effort into it and thought it would be, uh, and, you know, had any interest in being able to say it in the future, I could easily have gotten my PhD while I was still a teenager, but I didn't. And so I was, you know, got my PhD when I was, was just turned 20. And um, then, well, I, I um, uh, had various sort of job offers to sort of be a physicist, which had been my, my kind of goal for the last, you know, since I was like 12 or so. That had been my, somebody said, what do you want to do when you're grown up? I'd say, be a physicist. And so I, when I was 20 or so, I guess I was a physicist. And I ended up staying at Caltech on the faculty there um, uh, for, for a few years. And, and um, uh, you know, if, if things had worked out differently, uh, I'd probably still be there today. And, you know, I, I have many friends who were kind of in the typically a bit older than me, but, but um, uh, you know, in the same track as I was on. And they stayed, you know, they were physics professors their whole lives, so to speak. And, and uh, I could have done that. I didn't do that. Um, I, I didn't do that basically because, well, I had worked on particle physics for a while. And then I got, uh, I, I sort of was into using computational tools to do things and kind of reached the edge of what the world had already built in terms of computational tools. So in, in late 1979, kind of said, well, you know, if I really want to make the next stage of this, I got to do it myself. And so I ended up building this thing called SMP, Symbolic Manipulation Program, which was kind of a predecessor of Mathematica and Wolfram Language. That um, was my first big software project. Um, it was uh, kind of released it in 1981. And uh, I ended up starting my first company around that. Um, and uh, turns out uh, in those days, at least doing the company thing and doing the professoring thing didn't mix terribly well. Um, and uh, that kind of um, caused me to, to look elsewhere. And uh, meanwhile, in the middle of all of that, I started kind of, I got interested in kind of what, what is sort of more the most foundational thing you can build to make models in science. And I had kind of thought, oh, it must be particle physics and so on. But then I realized that, that sort of, there are lots of things in physics and, and elsewhere where sort of complicated behavior happens, but you, and you know, what's the essence of the phenomenon, so to speak. And, and that got me into kind of studying simple programs, kind of building it up a little bit like how I built up the things of my first computer language. Um, and so in 1981 or so, I started studying these, uh, things called cellular automata, which are kind of extremely minimal, simple rules, simple programs, where you just have a, a you know, line of black and white cells and just say, at each step, you know, update the color of a cell according to the simple rule. The rules can be incredibly simple, and yet the behavior you get is very complicated, something that I was super surprised about, and uh, it's kind of my all-time favorite science discovery. Um, and it's sort of a thing that unlocks a lot of understanding how complexity occurs in nature. And uh, I originally kind of started studying cellular automata and the intersection of, of studying self-gravitating gases and neural networks, which I got an interest in around 1980. And turns out cellular automata are uniquely unsuitable for studying either of those two things. But they are a great source of, of well, and models for lots and lots of other kinds of things and a great kind of source of intuition about sort of how things work. So, so anyway, that, that's, uh, you asked about my uh, education trajectory and I suppose by um, 
um, I, I had the perhaps good fortune to get through the sort of traditional education track uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and uh, before I had kind of um, uh, decided that, that it was too, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that I didn't like it. And, and I think, you know, the, the main, there were two meta discoveries I suppose I made. One was you can learn stuff just by reading books. That's an important meta discovery, maybe three meta discoveries. That's one. Another one is uh, near any problem that's an exercise in a textbook is a problem nobody's ever solved before. And those are more fun. Um, and uh, also, you know, kind of you, you look at what the textbook says and you say, I wonder about X, Y, Z. And, you know, I mean, because I sort of did wonder about X, Y, Z. And then I'm like, can I figure this out? The fact that it, the textbook doesn't say it's not an exercise in the textbook doesn't mean you can't figure it out. Now, sometimes those things that I started thinking about back when I was a kid, I still don't know the answer. Many of them. I have figured out in intervening years, including the second world thermodynamics, as it turns out. Um, but like uh, uh, sometimes these things that are, you know, it's 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 always, you know, and sometimes it's the case that there'll be some foundational question, some question you think is an obvious question to ask. Turns out nobody's bothered to ask that. They all stopped asking it because everybody said, oh, that must have been solved or that's too difficult. And turns out often, and sort of it's been part of the story of my life at least, is you come back to these things, you know, 100 years later, let's say, and you have completely different tools, quite different intuition. And turns out those foundational questions are not unassailable at that point. In fact, you can make huge progress with them. But people kind of avoided them because it's like, we know that's a foundational question. That must have been solved or that must have been um, uh, kind of... Um, uh, you know, that, well, that's too hard, so to speak. And I suppose the, the third meta thing is, uh, you know, use the best tools and learn the tools well. And for me, you know, obviously I've spent a long time building up our computational language, Wharton language and Mathematica and so on. And uh, uh, I'm a good user of those things. I use them all the time. I use them every day. And, you know, the things I've discovered, I, there's no way I would have been able to discover them without that technology stack. And uh, without, um, I mean, both uh, for me, it's been very invigorating to kind of go back and forth between basic science and technology because each one kind of informs the other. But it's, it's still, in, in terms of people sort of studying physics and things like that, it's, you know, learn the language we've built. It's um, because then you can, then among other things, you have a tool that never existed before. And you can go back to things people studied, you know, decades, centuries ago, and you've now got a new, a new paradigm, a new technology, a new approach to cracking those things. And turns out they often crack. And turns out that um, uh, you can make huge progress. But in order to do that, you have to be fluent in the language and the tool, um, because otherwise you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, maybe I can, I wonder about this, but it's too hard to write a program. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to look at it. And, and for me, it's kind of like I wonder about something. I write a piece of code. It takes me, you know, if I'm lucky, just a few minutes. And then it's like, okay, I'm generating all kinds of stuff and I know what's going on. And maybe it was a dumb idea. Maybe it wasn't a dumb idea, but uh, you know quickly and you're kind of having uh, sort of a huge help from, um, uh, from, from your computer, so to speak. 
um, to, to kind of get you, you know, it isn't just you, it's you and your computer. And that's a really powerful combination, so long as you know how to wrangle your computer well. Is, is there any advice you would give Jody Nitsch, so just finishing that off looking back, aside from trying a different rule earlier on, which I'm uh, sure. To, to people today studying physics and things. Uh, for yeah. people today or looking back, advice you wish you could have given yourself back then, I know those are the things you learned. Is, is there anything that you've learned after that that you wish you'd known then? Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think I was perhaps, when I studied physics, at the beginning, I probably, I, I mean, as it's turned out over the course of my life, I've learned lots of different fields and knowing lots of fields is super useful. And I think I, I, would have, uh, I would have encouraged myself to protest less about learning things that seemed irrelevant at the time. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think also uh, another thing is, you know, one thing that's been a feature of at least my way of doing science is you really can understand stuff. You know, whenever you're floating at a level where it's like things are happening, but you can do this technically, but you kind of don't understand it down to the bedrock. Turns out you might think you'll never, you know, will be really hard to understand because there's a whole bunch of technical detail there. But it turns out eventually you get to sort of a pattern where you can really actually drill down and understand down to sort of the bedrock. I'm not sure that I would have been able to do that when I was, you know, a, uh, um, I mean, actually, I think I, I think I did a lot better than I remembered myself doing because when I read stuff I wrote when I was like 12, I, I actually understood it better than I thought I understood it, so to speak. But it was, um, you know, I think in, in, you know, one of the things that's always important, uh, something I think I, I happen to, to not have a, a sort of a, to, to find fairly easy, is the strategy of what you do is, a, is, is ultimately more important than the mechanics of how you do the things you do. So in other words, you can be a fantastic solver of all kinds of problems, and, you know, fantastic solver of physics problems, and then you just go work on completely the wrong problem, you get nowhere or the results just aren't very interesting. And then all of that mechanical skill, so to speak, is completely wasted. So the kind of strategy of what should you study and kind of what approaches should you take, that's not something that they teach in school, so to speak. They teach kind of the track that's already been, been uh, followed, so to speak, rather than if you're going to do something that hasn't been done before, how should you think about what to do? So kind of figuring out the right question and I think, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've interacted enough with, with, you know, kids today, so to speak. Uh, somehow, you know, lots of kids ask all kinds of interesting questions, but teachers probably tell them, oh, those are too difficult, or, oh, you'll learn about that if you go to physics graduate school or something like this. Um, but it turns out, you know, it's, it's like, okay, maybe, but, you know, you can still think about it even when you haven't gone to physics graduate school. And sometimes... There are questions where, I mean, for me, I don't tend to be a, a textbook learner of things. I don't think I've, I've read very many, you know, textbooks as textbooks, so to speak, in my whole life. Um, I tend to be, you know, I tend to learn things when I have some project, something I'm trying to figure out. And then, you know, it'll be something and perhaps some abstruse area of mathematics or some other field or, or whatever it is. And then having defined that endpoint, having defined sort of what, what I'm trying to figure out, then I kind of learn the path that I need to be able to answer the question that I'm actually trying to figure out. And that's, uh, you know, for me, at least, and 
you know, people's personalities are different. I mean, some people, you know, for me, if you say you're going to do a physics competition, I would say, no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run away. I'm not interested. No interest in that. Um, and, you know, if you'd say uh, you're going to, you know, get a great, you know, do this class very diligently and get a great grade, I'm like, okay, fine. I, I you know, just not something I'm interested in. It's, um, I suppose, for me personally, and if I were to, you know, I suppose it's a piece of egotism on my part at some level that I like to think I'm doing something that is unique and wouldn't have just been done by a bunch of other people. And if I'm doing like the exercise in the book, it's like I know this has been done by thousands of other people. It's like, why am I doing this? Um, you know, I'm doing this sort of to improve myself, but that's I can improve myself in ways that are, are um, sort of more, uh, more unique and uh, that's more fun, so to speak, and more motivating. So I think the, um, this thing about sort of the strategy for what one does and what one chooses to study is really important. And I think, you know, at any given time, there are things that, that, that then there are a couple of other issues. Like, like at any given time, there are fields that are very active, very energetic. Everybody knows they're important. You know, there are sort of key problems and everybody's kind of marching towards those key problems. That's one kind of field to be in. It has the feature that if you figure something out, if you kind of are ahead of the pack, you figure something out, everybody knows that what you figured out is important. It has the downside that uh, the, there are lots of other people chasing the same uh, uh, the same thing, and it's sort of a competitive area, and it's kind of lots of lots of weird interpersonal things happen, and so on. That's sort of plan A. Plan B is pick an area where it's like nobody's cared about that area for a hundred years, and yet you can you know you think it's interesting for some reason or another, and you can build a kind of tower in that area, and that tower is kind of unique. It's it's a thing now. Maybe nobody cares about it. People might look at it and like, oh, okay, that's cool. And we don't care. I mean, for myself, I've tended to more do that second kind of thing. And, uh, you know, then you have to convince people that, yes, this is a tower that's, that's worth climbing, that's worth looking at and so on. Um, but you kind of feel more unique and uh, you kind of have a different dynamic in terms of not part of a herd of people that are sort of all charging in the same direction. I mean, when I did particle physics when I was a kid, I was sort of part of the herd charging in that direction. And I think I was, um, uh, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm 17 years old or something, and I'm doing random particle physics stuff. And it's, um, uh, you know, at that point, I didn't really have, I wasn't thinking particularly long term about uh, sort of how does this fit into some whole track of things that I want to do in my life. Um, as, you know, as years go by, and you start sort of building this tower, in my case, of sort of a combination of a basic science and technology, um, then eventually you realize, my gosh, I've spent you know 30 years on this, and it really matters which tower you built and whether you built the right tower and so on. Um, but I think that that's a thing where sort of the strategy of what you do and uh, kind of what 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 you actually get into doing is is important. Like for example, I mean, right now in physics, it's uh, uh, this this stuff that we've been able to do in the last couple of years is um uh uh is I, i'm you know it's it's very surprising that it works as well as it does but basically you know we've sort of opened up opened this door to i suppose what you have to call modern modern physics i mean you know modern physics has been devalued by the fact that you know there's physics and then there's modern physics and modern physics is what was discovered 100 years ago or a little bit more than that so i think i think we um uh maybe what we've what, what we've kind of been doing 
is kind of the next step from what was done like 100 years ago with the discovery of relativity and, and quantum mechanics and general relativity and so on. It's kind of the next, the next major step of a different theoretical framework for physics. And I have to say, I'm super surprised at how well it's worked. And I'm also kind of pleased that there are all these approaches to mathematical physics that people have taken in intermediate years, many of which have been a bit untethered from anything where you can sort of say, this is how actual physics works. They're kind of, well, if you, if you set up this and that and the other, we've got this elaborate piece of mathematical physics we can build. And, uh, and they built those things and they've often done rather elegant mathematics around them, but they've been rather untethered. And one of the things that I think is, is really cool sort of from a, I don't know, physics societal point of view or something is that the things we figured out kind of provide a kind of an underlying machine code and underlying foundation for lots of things that people have worked on and done really interesting things with in the intervening years. So that so they kind of plug into things that, that we've done and kind of give them a way to, to really you know, have a meaningful foundation. And that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, for example, right now I can say, you know, for people doing actual physics is like, there's a lot of low hanging fruit to be picked. You've got five, maybe 10 years of, um, of runway there when the, you know, the, the obvious low hanging fruit will be picked. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can see perfectly well what that low hanging fruit, some of what it's going to be. I mean, we have kind of a, a basic idea of how space and time and quantum mechanics and so on work, but somebody gets to actually discover the electron, for example, and um, uh, that, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Somebody, you know, we now know how our stuff connects to things like causal set theory and spin networks and other kinds of mathematical physics. We don't yet know exactly how the connection to string theory works, um, although it's clear that there is one. And uh, so that's, you know, the, these are things where um, those aren't, most of those are not particularly, uh, what, one of the problems with the physics project, our physics project is that, um, well, some things that one can do with it do not require a huge tower of knowledge of existing physics, and some do. Um, there's, there's quite a bit that can be studied kind of uh, uh, what I would now call ruleologically, just studying it in terms of these are simple rules, what do they do? The kind of, there's a science, I, I wrote this whole big book called The New Kind of Science 20 years ago now, um, that was about kind of the, the science of simple programs and their consequences for modeling things in nature and so on. But that um, this kind of whole idea of you just set up some computational rule and you run it and you see what happens, there's a whole very basic kind of science, sort of a, a science underneath mathematics in some ways that um, uh, relates to that. And there's a lot that can be done uh, in, in terms of understanding our sort of approach to physics that can be done at that kind of ruleological level um, without you know, sort of the full quantum field theory stack, so to speak. But there's also a lot of stuff that, that needs kind of the, the knowledge of existing physics to really make progress. You know, it'll be interesting to see who gets to discover the electron, so to speak. Um, I mean, I think that that and whether that needs, I, I suspect that's going to end up needing and, and we're sort of building some of the apparatus that's needed. I suspect that needs a bunch of uh, uh, mathematical sophistication. I mean, essentially what we have to do, I mean, we're sort of backing into talking about how the physics project actually works. But uh, one, of the, one of the foundational ideas is, you know, space is not just a background in which things are placed. It's a thing that has its own structure. And the structure it has is, is just a, a huge number of kind of atoms of space, all connected by relations. And so in a sense, you have this giant graph or hypergraph 
that represents kind of the, all the points in space. They're not, they're not positioned anywhere particularly in space. All you know about them is this point has these relations to these other points. But when you have a sufficiently large number of these points and relations and so on, the limit of that ends up approximating the way that space and space-time work. And uh, the, one of the things that then happens is, one of the things we don't know is why the universe is three-dimensional as opposed to or three dimensions of space as opposed to four or as opposed to 2.6 dimensional. And so one of the things that happens in our models is that uh, you have this kind of generalized notion of the structure of space as the limit of these graphs. And uh, so calculus, for example, which is sort of studying continuum things, but you, know, you learn single variable calculus, you learn multivariate calculus, but you never learn calculus with a fractional number of variables um, because that's not been invented. Um, the, uh, and so, Are you having to work so, uh, on a generalization of that? What's that? Are you having to work on a generalization of calculus then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, one of the big things that we have to do, it's not yet done, is to generalize calculus to work when you have uh, sort of fractional dimensional space and fractional numbers of variables. And, uh, you know, we know in outline how that works and in pieces of how that works. We know certain parts that we need in order to reproduce general relativity, the theory of gravity. Um, but uh, there is a mathematical structure that's needed there. And I suspect that sort of discovering the electron is going to require having a bunch of that mathematical structure in place. Um, and we just, you know, that that's a thing where it's always, you know, it, it's like this uh, drive, the sort of the, the research by the results one wants, so to speak. The, it, it's, um, it's a question of uh, nobody ever really looked at this kind of you know, generalization of calculus because nobody ever needed it before. And if you say, you know, is there existing mathematical work on this? Well, the answer is no. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a hole of something people haven't looked at. And it, it really helps. I mean, the fact that we're able to look at it reasonably uh, coherently you know, what's critically helps is that we've done all kinds of computer simulations of this. We, we know basically how things work and how things have to work because we've seen it. And, you know, it's, I, I tend to make the, have this kind of quote that I bring out with, with considerable regularity, which is, you know, you're studying these simple rules. You might think that they would always have simple behavior. You might think I'm much smarter than the simple rule. I'll be able to figure out what it does. But my sort of often wheeled out quote is, the computational animals are always smarter than we are, um, by which I mean that, you know, you have this, this rule and you say, I'm sure it's going to do this, that, and the other. You actually run it, and by golly, it does something different. And it does something that you never guessed it could possibly do, some bizarre thing that, you know, I mean, we would have discovered, well, for example, in space-time, in our models, there are things like black holes, and there are also other bizarre kinds of structures things I call space tunnels, for example, all kinds of weird things that, uh, you know, just found them by, by looking at the actual, you know, what actually happens computationally. And I'm sure we haven't figured out what all of those kind of exotic things are, because sometimes you'll, you don't even, you can't even recognize them in the structures you're building without having sort of some idea of what you're going to be able to see. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, an, an example, so, kind of our physics project, I would say in terms of fundamental physics is like a tremendous uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a giant cascade of low hanging fruit, so to speak. I mean, it amazes me what, um, what one's able to figure out. And, and the thing that is perhaps even the most remarkable is that the formalism that we've built for physics 
I can talk a little bit about how that works, but the formalism we built for physics um, is, is something that turns out applies to a lot of other areas as well. And so the thing I've been doing the last few months actually is applying it to metamathematics and uh, trying to use the, the well, it, it will turn out that the fact that it's possible to do higher level mathematics, the fact that it's possible to talk about kind of mathematics abstractly rather than always going down to the level of individual axioms and moving symbols around and so on at the level of axioms. The fact that higher level mathematics is possible turns out to be the case for the same reason that we think that continuum space exists. That is that instead of, you know, you could be kind of reduced in mathematics to studying things at the level of these symbols and axioms and so on. And then you would be sort of operating at the level of sort of the atoms of space. And the fact that there is a kind of a continuum limit of mathematics that is like the kind of higher level mathematics that people learn of sort of general theorems in mathematics and so on, that happens, it turns out, for the same reason that one has uh, kind of this uh, that continuum space exists in physics. And that connection, it's sort of a bizarre connection that I didn't see coming at all, is, uh, is something that comes out because sort of this formalism that we developed for the physics project also applies to, among other things, mathematics. And it turns out it also applies probably, well, I think it has a bunch of applications in biology and chemistry. In, uh, in chemistry, the most exciting thing is, has to do with molecular computing and kind of thinking about, so, well, you know, when you study chemistry, you are told, you know, oh, we can compute, you know, the, the, um, the concentration of this or that molecule in, um, uh, you know, in this, in this chemical, in this series of chemical reactions. I have to say that when I, chemistry is one of those fields where I was like, when I learned it as a kid, I was, I was like, I do not care about this. I will never, you know, this is totally uninteresting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I, I like to claim that the, um, uh, that most of the chemistry I ever learnt, I learnt the night before some chemistry O-level exam when I was 14 or 15 or something. Um, as it turns out, I, I've in subsequent years, uh, well, partly because um, I've been interested in nanotechnology and, and, and also because in more recent years, because we built a big chemistry subsystem in Wolfram Language and... Uh, the, it's probably, for me, the, the, the best possible way to kind of learn a field deeply is to try and do computational language design around it, because that really is a very unforgiving uh, process of, of do you really understand what's going on? And, and that's, um, so now I probably know, I, I don't know elementary chemistry, but I do know the theory of chemistry, I think, decently well. Um, the, uh, you know, if you ask me about some specific, you know, reaction with copper sulfate or something, I would not have a clue. Um, I mean, I'd probably type it into Wolfram Alpha and it would probably be able to do it for me. And it even has, we even now have step-by-step -step chemistry for chemistry students and so on. Um, but the, uh, I think the, um, the thing that, um, uh, uh, so, you know, one of the things then is that the usual view of chemistry is just you're looking at concentrations of molecules. One of the things that's come out of the physics project is a formalism where you can think about the sort of, individual interactions of molecules. So molecule A interacts with B, interacts with C, and then that interacts back on A and so on. And you end up with these kind of causal graphs of, of interactions between molecules. And we don't know whether such things are important for molecular biology uh, and other areas, but I suspect that they are. And I suspect it's sort of a big missing, uh, missing 
thing in molecular biology, for example, just as before one knew that DNA was a molecule that, you know, packed in billions of bits of information, one was like, oh, a molecule is just, you know, just knows what kind of molecule it is. And, and I think now my guess is that there's a, a huge amount of information in this kind of causal graph of interactions between molecules and so on. And that's something that sort of comes directly out of our physics project. And hopefully I get to explore that a bit in the next uh, few months. But, but then it just turns out the formalism for the physics project looks to be applicable to all sorts of different areas. I don't know, maybe, you know, there's been a, a sort of mystery in biological evolution of uh, having sort of a, a proper theory of, of natural selection that isn't the sort of more explanatory narrative story, but is something that is more formal. And perhaps that will come out of this as well. And there are a bunch of things in distributed computing that look really exciting and very near-term technological. There are a bunch of things about understanding economics, which may or may not work out. I think my test is, can we use these ideas to actually build a kind of uh, new type of distributed blockchain that actually economically works? Um, that's my kind of practical person's test for whether we understand something about economics. Um, and actually, we had started based on the physics project. This one an idea for how to build a kind of distributed blockchain. We started building that, and I realized I just don't understand. You know, this thing is supposed to be a repository of value and has prices and things like that. And I realized I just do not understand how this works in economics or in this case. And so I realized we kind of have to have a theory of economics to understand what's going on. And I, I am. This is a, a case of probably six months ago now, where where I was like I had some vague understanding of economics for a long time. But now I had kind of a very specific objective of understand, you know, uh, things about sort of how economic systems work. And that caused me to try and sort of uh, go along this path of understanding economics, which, I, you know, if I was just like, I'm going to sit back and read economics textbooks, for me, at least, they would kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the things I would look at what's on the page, I'd read the page. It's like, I don't know what's going on here particularly. You know, I need some actual question that I'm trying to answer um, to, to drive that. But, but actually, one of the things that, that comes out of this is that um, uh, you that this sort of formalism that came out of physics applies to all these other areas. We can take the successes of physics and the fact that physics is sort of the most advanced mathematical science and export those successes to these other areas. I mean, I might say that in terms of people learning physics, it's kind of a funny thing. You know, if you look at my company, for example, we've got a lot of physics PhDs and physics bachelor's degree people and people who've studied physics and so on. And probably probably more of that than people who've studied computer science. Certainly used to be the case. I don't know if that's still the case. And, and one of the things that, that I notice about physics, physics is a, a remarkably successful export field. I mean, I would say the other ones that are, that are runners up are, well, computer science is uh, in some ways of teaching it, but not in the more traditional ways of teaching it. It's a bit of an export field. Economics has actually been a bit of an export field. Philosophy has been a bit of an export field, although to different kinds of things. But physics is the top kind of quantitative export field. And uh, there are many cases where, you know, friends of mine who are CEOs of random companies and things will be like, um, uh, uh, you know, have some some problem they're trying to solve and so on. And I'll give them the advice, go hire some physicists, um, even though, you know, there are, because, because why? I mean, I hope physics education continues to, to sort of stimulate this. It's kind of like, it's like you figure things out in a kind of structured quantitative way, 
but you kind of expect that you'll get to the answer by all means by all means necessary, so to speak. I mean, mathematics tends to be a bit more of a uh, a process. You know, it matters the elegance and the process of what you're doing. Whereas in physics, there tends to be, uh, at least at the more advanced research level, it's just like, let's just get to the answer by, by whatever means we need. And, and that means that physics, you know, among academic subjects often has the reputation that um, uh, people will say, oh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, physicists go into some area and people will say, oh, the physicist is going to reinvent everything that's already been done in that area, which is often the case, but they often reinvent it better. And um, that's uh, uh, and that's that's sort of a, a thing that goes on. But but so I think you know in terms of of uh, the things. I mean, I would say that uh, in terms of things that are sort of low hanging fruit accessible today, uh, this whole area of ruleology and studying simple programs and what they do and so on. Uh, that the the fruits of that effort, the fruits of even rather you know the, the things that I've done in that have been very, very good in the sense that, you know, a small amount of work in that area has led to models and sort of basic understanding of models that have been used in a huge number of different fields. And so it's a place where there's sort of a, a pivot point where you can, uh, you know, by, by doing sort of a small amount of work at this very foundational level, you can, uh, you know, you can have effects that downstream are useful for lots of different fields. So this, this, this area of studying simple programs and what they do, it also has the feature that it's very accessible because it's a, it's a very young field and the methods for studying it are, you know, well, I've developed a bunch of them, some other people have developed some, um, but it's, it's, they're, not, uh, they're not things where there's a huge tower of, you know, you've got to learn hundreds of years of, of, uh, of sort of um, uh, intellectual technology, so to speak, to get to the point where you're doing research kinds of things in it. But I think in, in um, uh, and I think this, this thing that, uh, uh, that's sort of in a sense, that's the, that's the most basic science that you get to from sort of computation. I would say the other, you know, the other big thing, which is more general than physics, is kind of computational X, where X can be any field you can you can name, so to speak, uh, is is the future of pretty much everything. I mean, this is you know there was a time three hundred years ago or so now when mathematical X was the thing that looked to be kind of the future of everything, and and, and a lot of fields got mathematicized. Physics got mathematicized. It hadn't been mathematicized before, you know, Newton and Galileo and people like that. Um, it got mathematicized in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And um, then people thought, oh, you know, engineering got mathematicized as a result of that. Um, and, uh, you know, people thought in the beginning of the 1800s, people thought there would be a social physics, which would kind of mathematicize economics or what was then emerging as economics and all these other fields. That didn't quite so much happen. And people even imagined there might be a mathematical biology that would mathematicize biology. That didn't happen. In a serious way. But what we now see is that there's computational X, and that really is happening across sort of all X, because computation is a much more general paradigm than mathematics. And it's something that can be sort of applied across all these areas. And I think the thing that you know a lot of my life work has been devoted to building this computational language, wealth language, which kind of is a is a way of expressing sort of computational thoughts in a way that both humans can understand and computers can understand. And it's kind of, uh, 
one of the things that that's leading to is letting people sort of get to computational X without learning how to write for loops in a computer science class. Um, because the fact is, you know, a, a computer science education is kind of weird because it's sort of partly, it's, it's deeply anchored, you know, the, the sort of what is possible to do with computers is very great. And computer science education is a little bit like, you know, learning some aspects of it, a little bit like learning the alchemical foundations of, um, uh, of sort of modern physical science or something. It's, it's kind of like, yes, you could learn how to write some loop that causes the registers to get updated in the, in the ALU of the computer, but, you know, we don't need to operate at that level as humans, so to speak. I mean, a small number of humans need to operate at that level to design computers, just as a small number of humans operate at the level of, you know, designing car engines and so on. But most people just get to drive their cars around without knowing how the engine works, so to speak. And I think the, um, when it comes to sort of computational X, the thing that is sort of the main thing achieved by the computational language we built is that you can get to sort of thinking about things computationally without going through those sort of low level steps. And so, you know, I would say that for people entering kind of uh, the world of kind of intellectual sorts of things these days, you know, computational X for some X is kind of, is a very, very, very good bet. And some X is, it's been reasonably well developed already for some values of X, so to speak, there's pretty much nothing done. And you can go look at the, you know, you go, you know, uh, type a search on the web, computational, whatever. And if you find almost nothing there, that's probably a pretty good bet for, for a, a future field. And, and what tends to happen, it's always fun. I've, you know, I've, I've watched enough fields grow up in my time that there'll be a, an early set of people that get into the field. And then decades will go by. And then it'll be like, you know, there'll be some picture of the early people in the field and it'll be like the founders of field X or something. And, and, and usually some of those people are young at the time. Some of them aren't so young. People, you know, I think, uh, you know, one, one doesn't get to pick the time in history at which one lives, so to speak. But at any given time in history, there are certain sort of doors that are being opened. And, you know, one might be uh, not so young and the, the door that is really relevant to, you know, that really fits in with one's way of thinking about things suddenly finally opens and one's able to, to pursue that area. And, and so you, you typically see kind of a mixture in, in new fields. You typically see a mixture of young people and not so young people who kind of enter these things. And uh, it's, always, uh, it's always remarkable that, you know, people who get into these things early, the, the kind of the, the rising tide, you know, raises all boats, so to speak. And, and those people typically, if they stick with it, become sort of the distinguished people in, in the field X number of decades later. So it, it's, um, but I think, you know, people somehow, the uh, people have the point of view, you know, oh, you have to, I, I mean, the thing I should say is that, that sort of one of the, the subtexts to all of this is, you know, research is a thing that people can do. Not everybody who studies physics and does well studying physics is going to be good at doing research. In fact, you know, there are plenty of people who will study some field and mathematics, physics, do really well in competitions, whatever else, and they're actually quite unsuitable for research. They are great at doing things that don't involve kind of the unknown, you know, going off into the unknown. I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a chap who worked at my company for many years who was, I just got a physics PhD and, and, and came and said, look, I just don't do research very well. It turned out to be a person who's a, a fantastic 
uh, really outstanding uh, figure out, you know, you could give them a very big problem, like, you know, solve the problem of doing natural language understanding for a large chunk of orphan alpha, and he could go off and solve that problem. But it's like, you know, somebody else has to say what problem should be solved, so to speak. And, and different, um, uh, you know, different people, you know, work differently in that regard. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, in fact, I, I, should, uh, I should give a, a, a shout out for one, um, uh, one thing that I've been involved in the last 20 years or so, which is, um, uh, it's like, how do you teach people to do that stuff? You know, we have a, a summer school for grown-ups and a summer camp for high school students every year that we've been doing for, well, the summer school for 20 years, the summer camp for maybe 11 years now. I think we, we, we um, uh, and um, we actually just added a piece for middle school kids as well. But um, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how that, I, I, I haven't lived in England so long that I don't know whether, how that quite translates into high school, I guess is age um, 14 to 18. Yeah, um, I think they're all in than secondary school here, but um, yeah, yeah, right. on the, yeah, the system's a bit weird. Yeah, right. It changed when I was when I was a kid. It changed yeah. from, um, uh, but um, the in any case, the the uh, sort of the the um, it's actually perhaps interesting for people to see if you go on the web and you find our our summer school and summer camp. You can find all the projects people have done in these past years. And uh, kind of the, it's sort of an interesting process because it's, you know, the summer school is three weeks, the summer camp is two weeks. And it's like, can people do a, a research type project in that period of time? And, you know, the things, the thing I found is, well, given the tools that we've built, that's one critical piece. And then given a decent selection of a project, and I, somehow I end up seeming to be the person who eventually figures out all of the projects, so to speak. It's my, you know, I, I haven't been a, a professor or teacher type for, well, for, what is it, 35 years now. And um, this is my, those few weeks are my moments of sort of extreme professoring or something in the, uh, mostly consists of invent 150 projects or something uh, that are suitable for, yeah. for people to do. And it's, it's, it's very satisfying because some, some of the ones that I sort of invented 20 years ago have turned into whole career-long stories for people, which is which is really neat. Um, but uh, uh, in any case, that that um, uh, let's see. So, I, w- w- what 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 else would you like to ask about? You've, you've got to be chatting about all yeah, kinds well, of. Yeah, going kinds back to the models, I'm, I find interesting. We could talk about the physics model in a set, but applying that to other areas. So, do so so say like if a model for economics was causally invariant in the same way would you get things like special relativity of economics like cropping up do, do those sort of things transfer yep i think so i don't know what it is yet i've been wondering <laughs> about that i mean i yeah. think it's it's a question of of um i had kind of a a possible way of thinking about that which is you know what is the key ideas of special relativity in the end have to do with things like time dilation and uh, well, okay. So first of all, you have to have an idea of motion, and that's not a completely trivial thing. But in a sense, in our kind of computational view of how the universe works, you can either spend your effort, your computational effort, sort of figuring out how you're going to evolve in time, how you're going to progress in time, or you can use your computational effort, seeing how you kind of get repositioned somewhere in space. And so in a sense, if you're moving in space, you're using up your computational budget on your motion 
and you don't have as much computational budget to evolve in time. And that's kind of the foundational cause of, the, of time dilation because time effectively runs more slowly because you're using the computational resources you have to, to do your motion, so to speak. And so, you know, I have wondered whether there's an analog of that in economics. And I've been trying to figure out, like, for example, if you imagine some agricultural society where people are growing lettuces or something, and you can either uh, sort of sell your lettuce locally, or you have to kind of translate your lettuce to another place, you know, you're, you're kind of using up some resources, sort of moving your lettuce from here to there. And that's kind of a, a and so that's, that's sort of a, uh, you know, that, that is potentially a rough kind of price-based analog of time dilation, maybe. It's, a, it's a, a thought about how that might work. But yes, the, I mean, the, the thing that I think, my, my current guess is that, you know, in economics, for example, you know, what is, what is the lowest level of economics? Well, it's people doing transactions with each other. And there's this giant network of transactions people are doing with each other. What is not obvious is that from that network of transactions, there emerge things like global prices. It could be the case that everything, everything is just a barter transaction and there's no meaningful notion of money, for example, where there is a, a sort of a, a fixed a price of value for things that is in some sense global. And my guess is that the reason that arises is for the same kind of reason that we have a global notion of space and that essentially the, uh, I mean, this, is, this goes into, this is always, it's always difficult to talk about things one hasn't figured out, um, but, uh, you know, in uh, you know, my my current thinking is that the analog of space and general relativity and so on will end up being the existence of a price, the existence of some kind of somewhat global price, will be the analog of the existence of a global reference frame in uh, in space, where one can imagine that there is things happening all across space at a certain moment in time. That that's a reasonable thing to think about doing, which it might not be. Um, that that can be the thing one thinks about, I think is kind of, I, I'm guessing is kind of the analog of the idea that one can have a global price for something. But I'm not sure yet. I mean, that's a thing yet to be figured out. It's a thing, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be, uh, I, I'd love to see it figured out. I, I, it, yeah, it's, it, fascinating. it's funny to think about, but, um, um, you know, it's one of these things where, where uh, if uh, uh, somebody else could figure it out, it'd be great. You know, I think one of the things that we've been doing in this physics project is I've been doing it as a very open science project. So, you know, we live stream uh, our sort of working sessions and we post every, you know, I've, I've even been recording, I think it's probably the most boring video you can imagine watching, but I've been doing these video work logs where I'm just working on my own, working on the on these projects and things. I just record, I screen record. And um you know, hours and hours, six hours of stuff. And, and um, uh, I haven't looked at them again, but we post them on the web. And, um, uh, you know, part of the thing that's interesting about that, actually, which I think people have made use of is, you know, when you read a thing that I've written or something about our physics project, every picture in there, you can click it. It's got Wolfram language code that actually runs. That's been a very important thing, like at our summer schools and winter schools and so on. People just take that code and, and start from that point and start figuring out new things from that. But also people sort of wondered, well, how did this, you know, what, what were you doing? You know, how, where, did, where did this sentence come from in this thing you've written? Well, you can actually go back and find the video where that sentence got typed in, so to speak. And that way you kind of know 
well, you know, maybe I made a mistake, who knows, but um, maybe there was some whole big thing. I mean, sometimes it can be the case in things I write at least that, you know, it ends up in one sentence, but actually it was three hours of figuring out some elaborate thing with a bunch of computations and so on. And then the result is, and it works this way. And, uh, uh, you know, and I don't really think it's important because I think it's semi-obvious that it works that way. I don't think it's important to show kind of the three hours of figuring out that it was obvious that it worked that way, so to speak. But that's uh, that's sort of this kind of approach to open science gives one the opportunity to uh, to, uh, to do that. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think, um, uh, let's see, what were you asking? You were asking about other, well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the sort of the, the story of what, um, okay, so there's a, there's a very surprising thing, which is, which sort of I got backed into from the physics project. So in the physics project, we're imagining there is some rule that determines the sort of updating of this network that represents space and everything in space in the universe. And this rule updates the thing and it leads to different, there are different possible update sequences that can happen and those correspond to the different possible histories in quantum mechanics and so on. But the question that that still leaves open is, okay, why is the universe following this rule and not another rule? And so thinking about that question, question that arises, well, we say you're using this rule, but you're applying it in all possible ways. Why don't you just imagine that you're using all possible rules? And so imagine that essentially you've got this thing where you're running all possible computations uh, in all possible ways. And that thing, which turns out has never been studied before, is a thing I now call the Rouliad. And a lot of people say, that's, that's kind of an obvious object, you know, it's kind of surprising nobody had ever looked at that before. But it's this thing where you're sort of running all possible computations with all possible initial conditions for an infinite time. And that's a thing. It's a, it's a sort of a necessary formal thing that exists. Well, now the issue is we are observers somehow embedded in that thing, observing that thing. And it turns out that if we imagine certain features of us, like we imagine we're computationally bounded, we imagine that we at least believe that we have some persistence through time with those two constraints that leads us to take samples of this Rouliad that have effective laws that we perceive that correspond to major laws of physics. And so that's, uh, so in a sense, it's a very bizarre thing because from this kind of necessary sort of uh, formal underlying structure, the way that we are sort of uh, observing that inevitably ends us up with general relativity and quantum mechanics. Um, and, uh, and that, um, but so these things sort of emerge from this, from this uh, kind of necessary object. And it then turns out that mathematics also emerges from that object. And so in a sense, when we do physics, we are sampling the Rouliad as physical observers. When we do mathematics, we're sampling the Rouliad as mathematical observers who have slightly different characteristics. And that's kind of a, a way of understanding sort of what it means, what mathematics is, and a way to understand that. And so when we think about things like, um, oh, I don't know, molecular computing or chemistry or molecular biology, what we're in a sense doing is we might think about it in terms of the Rouliard, we don't have to probably go that far down in the sort of hierarchy of ideas, but essentially the bigger question is, we've got all these processes going on, what is the chemical observer or the biological observer? What are they like? 
And so one of the things I've been interested in recently is I mentioned this kind of causal graphs of molecular interactions, but the sort of the question of, you know, is it just the concentration of, you know, um, I don't know, hormone X or something that causes this thing to happen? Or is it, is it the binding of that thing to some membrane that actually can looks at individual molecules and says, oh, did this molecule go into this pore in this membrane before that one did and ask things which are beyond the level of what traditional chemistry with the chemical concentrations would ask. And so, for example, there, one of the questions is, can one sort of invent a device that is like a measuring device that is kind of like a molecular biology style chemical observer? What is that like? Um, and uh, just as, I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in right now is a proto thing, which doesn't really exist yet, that I'm calling observer theory, which is kind of the theory of how it is that what kinds of samplings of this Gruyad can actually be done. And so that leads one to so a project that I have coming up, actually I haven't done it yet, so can't really comment on it too much, is um, to just understand how do you measure things? And I, I do know that like in Wolfram Alpha, we have sort of the world's largest collection of, of units and so on. And so there are 10,000 kinds of units for things, including very exotic ones, like, like um, uh, one of my favorite exotics is moles per acre, which you might think was you put fertilizer on a, on a field and it's, you know, the number of the amount of fertilizer you put down. Turns out it's actual moles, like the little critters. Oh. It's the amount of, you know, it measures the aeration of soil and so on. There are lots of exotic things like that. But, yeah. but the question is, when you are measuring those kinds of things, sort of one of the things I've been interested in is, can you make a kind of universal measuring device where it measures only, you know, has a camera and it has a chemical sensor, broad spectrum chemical sensor, as various other kinds of things, and you deduce all these other uh, kinds of measured quantities. But more than that, sort of what is the, what is the concept? How does measurement really work? That is, you know, in our, I don't know, you know, something like, uh, uh, I don't know, our eyes, you know, photons come in and they, they produce electrical signals on our retina and they do, you know, they, they have various kinds of amplification happen and so on. But what are the, what is sort of, like, like when Turing machines were invented as a model of computation in 1936, you know, Alan Turing kind of had in mind the way that sort of humans compute things and the way that bank clerks go and, you know, take information and put it in file cabinets, well, they did in those days at least. Um, and so the question is, what's sort of the analog of that for, uh, for measurement? What's the kind of uh, the analog of a Turing machine for, for the observer for measurement? And that's the universal Turing machine. machine. Yeah. What's that? And a universal Turing machine sort of uh, measurement. Yeah, well, right. I mean, the question is, what is the, yeah. what's the thing that you could potentially have a universal measuring uh, device? And sort of how does that work? And what is, the, what is the concept of universality in that case? It's a little different than a Turing machine where it's like feed and input, crunch, 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 generate output. This is a different thing. It's a different kind of workflow of what you're trying to achieve. Of There's a thing happening in the world and you're kind of turning it into a, um, something that is somehow uh, relevant to the observer. I don't, I don't know how it works yet. So the, the, um, again, I'm, I'm, um, I'm trying to describe something I don't understand yet. So... Does taking different sort of measurements sort of correspond to moving through uh, Rulio space in any way? Is that, are they equivalent? Possibly. 
possibly. I mean, I think that, um, yes, I think that different positions in rural space correspond to different ways to parse the universe, so to speak. Okay. And yes, different kinds of different kinds of approaches to measurement probably can be parameterized that way. I mean, kind of the assumption is that just as sort of different humans have a different way of understanding the world because they, you know, their brains have been learnt different things and are constructed in different ways, it's kind of like that's a small distance in rural space. To get to, you know, the, the putative aliens, you know, uh, uh, the extraterrestrial alien, whatever, you know, that's potentially much further in rural space, sufficiently far that we don't have any hope of, of sort of understanding that from where we are right now, probably. Um, and it's kind of like you're a certain distance apart in physical space, you're a certain distance apart in rural space. And, uh, you know, what is, the, what is the way of thinking about those things which are separated in rural space? And that, it's, for me, that's a, it's, it's kind of, yes, that, that's sort of inventing different frameworks for thinking about things, inventing different kinds of things you can measure. By the way, I mean, it's, you know, when you have uh, molecules in a gas, what do you measure? You measure pressure, you measure velocity, you measure temperature, but you might also be measuring that weird little correlation between, you know, this, this little triple of molecules that does this and this and this, which for us right now, with our approaches to measurement and our way of doing physics right now, it's like, we don't care about that. All we care about is pressure and temperature and the things that you learn about in gas laws and so on. And that's, um, you know, that's the, that's the part that um, uh, you kind of need a different conceptual frame of science. One thing that happens is pure tool building that moves things forward. You know, you get to have a telescope, you get to have a microscope, you get to have a computer. Those are, those are tool type things that allow you to methodologically move forward. The other big thing that happens is kind of new ways of thinking about things. Computation is both a tool, tooling kind of story and a new way of thinking about things kind of story. I think most people still are in the, in the belief that it's only a tooling kind of story. It's not, it's also a way of thinking about things kind of story. And that's only kind of in its early years, I would say, of, of developing. But you know, that, that's, um, so when it comes to, you know, how do we move around in rural space? Part of the story is we need sort of a conce different conceptual framework to thinking about things. I mean, the, you know, the things I've, I've done, this whole idea of looking at simple programs and what they do, you know, people could have done that 2,000 years ago. There's really nothing that stops one from imagining, you know, make a mosaic of my rule 30 cellular automaton. You know, you just follow these rules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Probably nobody did it. Probably if somebody had done it, science would have evolved in a rather different way. But why did nobody do it? Well, nobody did it because there was no conceptual framework in which would say that that would be in any way interesting. And um, so... You know, and sometimes the conceptual framework can develop only after you have lots of examples and tools and all this kind of thing. And, and the thing that's happened with the physics project is something which I'm sort of realizing is a conceptual framework is uh, I'm sort of referring to it as a kind of fourth paradigm for thinking about science and modeling in science. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, the first paradigm was what was done in antiquity, where people sort of just said, what are things made of? Are things made of atoms? Are things made of this? Are things made of that? And that was something where you didn't really have much of a notion of dynam dynamic progress or time. It was just what are things made of? And there are many fields of science where we're still basically in the what are things made of stage, so to speak, the kind of structural stage. Well, then move forward in time to the 1600s 
and you get the mathematicization of science and uh, the idea that you know mathematical equations can describe things in the world. And then, for example, time just becomes a parameter in the equations. It's just you're solving a differential equation. It has a time variable. You can pick the value of that time variable. You know what the system does. Then you move forward to basically the 1980s and you get to sort of the computation paradigm where instead of saying, let's put a, you know, have a mathematical equation, you say, let's have a simple program. And to know what a system is going to do, let's run the program and see what it does. One of the important phenomena there is this thing I call computational irreducibility, that to find out what the program is going to do, you basically don't have much choice but to just run the program and see what happens. And that's, that's so there's a notion of time that's sort of this inexorable progress of computation. And that's sort of a feature of this kind of third paradigm for, for, for thinking about models and science is this kind of computational paradigm where you're, where you're sort of writing down rules and then seeing what happens. Well, then um, uh, it's um, uh, the, the sort of fourth paradigm, which is the thing that's come out of the physics project, is this idea there are many different paths. There are many different things that can happen, many different threads of time that branch and merge and so on. And in order to even be able to say what happened, you need an observer who is parsing out all those different threads of time. And so that, that's, um, uh, that, that's kind of the, um, uh, that, that's sort of this fourth paradigm for thinking about science. And it's one which uh, looks to be really fertile. And, you know, we're only at, uh, you know, probably six months into thinking about what the implications of that are. And um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, kind of very, very early days for that. I'm, I'm noticing that the time, talking of the progression of time, uh, we're we are <laughs> yeah. heading to other things that I have to do. So if, if, if let's, let's make sure we cover if there are particular things you wanted to ask about. How, how long do you think you have just to estimate? Well, maximum about 15 minutes. Okay, so, sure. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I believe, let me, let me just check my, I, let me check. Uh, yes, that would be a correct estimate. Um, okay. the, cool. Well, I, I think one of the things that would be cool to talk about, one of the things that I found most beautiful and striking whilst reading the book that you wrote on the physics project um, is that both quantum mechanics and relativity are kind of the same thing. Um, so I think that would be really cool to talk about. If you could explain that for the audience, that would be... I mean, let me, let me see, see if I can. And, and, um, <laughs> in a brief so, time, yeah. So, and, uh, you've, got, you've got to start off by thinking about sort of the, the, the basic stuff of the universe is this giant network that represents space and everything in space. So just like, you know, in a fluid or something, there's a bunch of molecules down there, but there are sort of things you can make out of the fluid, like a vortex or something. That's kind of how we imagine the things that we know about in the universe, like electrons and so on, what they are. And that then there's kind of a, a um, for us, this kind of um, the, the, this this network is continually getting rewritten. So there's rules that say if there's a piece of network that looks like this, turn it into one that looks like that. That's kind of the progress of time is the progressive rewriting of this network. And the, the there's sort of a question of what does the network look like on average after it's run for a while. And the answer is much like molecular dynamics limits to fluid mechanics. It, the, the, the dynamics of these networks limits to general relativity, the, the, the standard theory of gravity from 1915. One feature of, so one, one thing in general relativity is general relativity starts talking about um, 
what uh, what a straight lines like what what's uh, in if we just have a flat space a flat piece of paper whatever we want to know what's the shortest distance between two points it's a straight straight line and um the uh, but if we have a curved space the shortest distance between two points is now a curved line just like on the surface of the earth it's a great circle for example and um in general relativity the big idea is that energy and mass uh, deform space so that the shortest distance between two points is no longer a straight line but something curved and that deformation is associated with gravity so the presence of energy and or, or, or mass deforms the structure of space curved space which means that straight lines are now no longer straight they're deflected and that deflection you can uh, corresponds to what we interpret as the force of gravity so in our models the same thing happens what is energy in our models energy i was amazed that it was as simple as this energy is basically the density of activity in the network the number of rewrites that are happening per unit volume essentially it's a little trickier than that because the the space itself the system itself is defining the notion of volume so it ends up being the flux of of causal edges through space like hypersurfaces is a slightly more formal definition of energy density in our models but okay so energy density in this network that is space corresponds to uh, to the the um, corresponds to the sort of rate of rewrites and we ask then how does that deform the emergent space that we get from these networks and the answer is it does it in exactly the same way that general relativity says it should do it and the presence of energy momentum mass and uh, associated with activity in the network will deform will make the network behave like a curved space and deform gd6 shortest paths in the network okay so now how does quantum mechanics work well the big thing in our models is there are all these possible rewrites that can occur there are many possible paths of rewrites and quantum mechanics that's exactly what it sort of talks about classical mechanics is about sort of definite things happen in the world quantum mechanics is about there are many possible paths of things that can happen and the um uh, we only get we kind of get to see the probabilities of things based on the aggregate of all those paths so in our systems we have these things we call multiway graphs which represent all possible histories and so quantum mechanics is kind of the 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 aggregate effect of all those possible histories and things like quantum so when we look at this kind of multiway graph it's branching it's merging so on we can imagine just sort of slicing across and it's doing that over through time we can imagine slicing through it at a fixed time so to speak we make reference frames much like we do in, in relativity but but that's um, uh, but that's kind of more of a detail but basically we're saying at a fixed time slice through this multiway graph what do you have you have a bunch of sort of uh, threads of 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 history that are poking through that surface that you slice through So you have all these threads of history those correspond to different essentially quantum states of the system and you have this space that is kind of the layout of all those different threads of history and you can kind of say two threads of history are nearby if they have a common ancestor so then this space of all these threads of history we talk about as branchial space the space of quantum branches and branchial space has a structure just like physical space has a structure what is the interpretation in physical space you know we move around we know kind of what motion is in physical space what's the analog in branchial space it seems to be the case that the analog in branchial space is the phase of a quantum amplitude 
So quantum amplitudes and standard quantum mechanics are complex numbers. And uh, the, there's some, um, uh, this, this, the phase, the, the, um, uh, you know, where, what angle you're at in the complex plane um, is, is, is one part of that complex number. And um, we think that position in branchial space, so difference between positions, distance in branchial space is basically quantum phase. So then what one's thinking about is one's got a GD stick, a shortest path through this multi-way graph, and it then turns out that energy momentum in the multi-way graph, which is also activity in the system, uh, deflects GD6 in this multi-way path. Well, what is the effect of deflecting a GD6? The effect, effect is to move, which just like you know, when a spacecraft goes, goes past a planet or something, it's deflected by the gravity of the planet. So similarly, this, this quantum history is deflected in this branchial space by the presence of energy momentum. And, and, and so what is deflection in branchial space? Well, it is a change of phase of the quantum amplitude. And it then turns out that sort of the core of quantum mechanics, not how it's taught at the lowest levels these days yet, but um, sort of the way people understand it ultimately is a thing um, invented by a physicist I knew pretty well uh, named Richard Feynman, a thing called the Feynman path integral which is a, a way of interpreting quantum mechanics in terms of looking at kind of the evolution of phases of possible quantum histories. And it turns out that looks as if the, um, uh, the, the kind of the Feynman path integral is associated with the deflection of paths in branchial space associated with energy momentum. And that's, and the, the Feynman path integral, the formula is, the quantum phase is e to the i square root of minus one times, I think, called the, the action divided by h bar, thanks constant over two pi. And the action is essentially a relativistically invariant version of energy density. So what we're seeing is the, um, uh, uh, the, the kind of what is deflection in physical space associated with energy becomes deflection in branchial space in, in the kind of quantum side of things. And that means that the, that phenomenon that leads to Einstein's equations in physical space is the exact same thing that leads to the Feynman path integral, which is the, the, the thing that leads to quantum mechanics in branchial space. So it, it turns out that um, uh, basically general relativity and quantum mechanics are the same theory, but just played out in different kinds of space. It's a big shame that Dick Feynman isn't still a still alive yes. he would have really, uh, really cool. uh, I, I, you know i talked to him for a long long time about where does the what he thought was the formula in quantum mechanics is sort of for time evolution is e to the iht where h is the hamiltonian or the energy function t is time and in, in thermodynamics the the sort of key formula is e to the minus beta h where beta is the inverse temperature and h is again the energy function and I spent ages talking to him about why are these the same? Why do they both have the same exponential form? One is in imaginary time. One is, you know, how are they related? And um, uh, I think we now actually know the answer. So that's that's um, uh, that's cool. Although although there's a certain depth of mathematics you need. I mean, the, the, the e to the minus beta h comes from statistical mechanics, which is yet another story of how that's all connected in. Probably don't um, try to get. It turns out, yeah. the right. It's it's um.
but um, anyway, so that was a that was a super fast um, uh, rendition yeah. of, of why quantum mechanics and general relativity are the, are the, are the same theory, so to speak. No, I, I mean, that, that, that has had resonances in and lots of things people have looked at, like the holographic principle, the correspondence between anti-zeta space and conformal field theory. Um, that uh, is, a, frankly, a, I think a much more obscure way of discussing these kinds of things, but that's that's been a popular thing and that's come out of string theory and so on that appears to be basically a to do with the correspondence between physical space and branchial space. And there's this thing we call the multi-way causal graph, which kind of encompasses both of those things and essentially as projections in one direction or the other and, and so on. But that's uh, uh, that's kind of the story of, of how this is working. I, I think that, um, um, you know, the good news is in a sense that although the things that come up in our physics project, they there's a, a pretty there's a, an increasingly large tower of sort of technical ideas that are involved, and and they're perhaps fortunately unfortunately they're not just ideas from physics. They're also ideas from kind of the upper reaches of pure mathematics, and also from the upper reaches of theoretical computer science, um, and those all kind of get mixed together, um, but. I think it's still the case, you know, uh, climb the tower quickly because the tower is getting higher, so to speak. I mean, in other words, it's, I think it's, it's um, uh, our physics project is still, you know, it's possible to learn a large fraction of what is known in it. Um, in, you know, uh, it's, it's plausible to do that. Uh, I think it, it will not be plausible. And I know, I know there will come a point where people are doing all kinds of things with it that I don't understand at all. Um, and there's some directions where that's already happening, but but you know when fields get bigger, it gets harder and harder to kind of uh, you know uh, understand the whole thing. But but now it's, it's still possible, I think. Um, okay. So on that note, I'm taking it that's the that's the time you have done. Yes, I pretty pretty much. I have to I have to disappear in a moment here. Also, thank otherwise, you I don't get so otherwise much. I don't get to eat any lunch before the next thing that I have. Oh God, yeah, I, I can't do that. But thank you for spending so much of your valuable time with me. It was fun. It was good. lots of lots of lots of fun things. I think I think we talked about some uh, talked about lots of interesting stuff. All right. Well, good good luck with your um, uh, uh, trajectory in. Um, college university i guess uni is it really called uni in british english these days uni. yeah uni that wasn't a that wasn't a term 40 years ago when or 45 um, years ago americanized language i guess yeah no no that's not american that's is absolutely not? not american that's no, not, that okay. would be australian and um uh things that's like human. that not american okay. in, in american the 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 sole name for that thing is college oh okay no. they don't use the word uni at all nope Nope. Okay. Um, anyway, well, yeah. uh, nice <laughs> to chat. Yeah. And, um, thanks, thanks so much. That was yeah. amazing to meet you. So, extraordinarily impressive, isn't he? I hope that's inspired you to find out more about his work. Personally, I hope that one day I'll have the chance to interview Stephen Wolfram again, as there are still so many questions I'd like to ask. Thanks for tuning in and for your continued support. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Until then, looking forward to the next interview.